On this incredible episode, we get the pleasure of picking the brain of Dr. Sarah Buckley, where we go on a journey into the hormones from conception to pregnancy, birthing to feeding, bonding and attachment. Sarah Buckley is a New Zealand-trained GP with qualifications in GP obstetrics and family planning. She is also a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland, where her research is focused on oxytocin and the autonomic nervous system in labour and birth and the impacts of interventions. Dr. Buckley's work critiques current practices in pregnancy, birth and parenting from the widest possible perspectives including scientific, anthropological, cross-cultural, psychological, and personal. She encourages us to be fully informed in our decision-making, to listen to our hearts and our intuition, and to claim our rightful role as the real experts in our bodies and our children. She is well known from her incredible and best-selling book, Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering, a doctor's guide to natural childbirth and early parenting choices and her ongoing interest in the hormones of labour and birth culminated in her groundbreaking report, Hormonal Physiology of Childbearing. This report, which is available for free online, has been described as one of the most revolutionary and influential publications on maternity and newborn care ever issued. So on this episode, Sarah tells us much, much more about oxytocin, that marvellous feel-good hormone that really does control so much of our bodily functions. Sarah answers questions about whether oxytocin and synthetic oxytocin, syntocinon or pitocin, act the same in labour and birth. We talk contractions and how they work, pain relief in labour and the important role oxytocin plays, the effects of epidurals on oxytocin and how they affect the mother's brain in labour and even get time to discuss postnatal personality changes due to the hormones. And so, so much more. So what are you waiting for? Go get those earbuds in your lug holes and enjoy this incredible episode. I think this may be one you come back to time and time again. It's packed, I tell thee. Packed! I'm Katie James and this is the Midwives Cauldron Podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. So go on, subscribe now and hear us on your favorite podcast host. going to break with tradition and I'm going to stop. Every so often I, I allow you to start Rachel and um, <laughs> and it's normally with those people that you know quite well so yeah that so makes it harder does it okay it's, here goes right. shush all right so welcome <laughs> <laughs> stop it I'm not good at this stuff okay so welcome Dr Sarah Buckley to the Midwives Cauldron um, I am so excited to have you on. It's lovely to see you. Um, I get to see you. You're one of those amazing people that I get to see at conferences and events and we kind of get together and have a chat and and it's just lovely to have you in our cauldron. So welcome. Thank you, Rachel. It's very, uh, it's very fun to be here. It's lovely to have you 
Dr. Sarah, we are thrilled. You have written books. You have written a plethora of blogs. You've been on podcasts. Your name is so well known, I would say, throughout the world. And you have changed so many lives, not only women and their partners, but also us as healthcare professionals and midwives and working in this space. And that was why it was so important for us to have you on. So thank you. I think where um, we would like to start is to just understand a little bit how you got involved in this area. What was the spark and the passion that got you onto this sort of journey? Well, you've got to say it's a bit in my blood. Um, I come from a small town in New Zealand called Whangarei, and my dad was actually an obstetrician and worked actually as a GP, as a family doctor up there. But before him, my grandfather had been a GP obstetrician, and we've got famous family stories about him going out on horseback to help um, women giving birth in the bush and coming back like two days later. So so there's all of that. Uh, and, um, yeah, my dad was always often always a child going to the maternity annex um, helping women have babies. So there was that side. And um, also I found out later on that both my mother and father were born at home. And in fact, my mother was attended by her um, mother's mother-in-law, like her her paternal grandmother, um, who was the mm. granny midwife in, in a town wow. called Te Aroha in New Zealand. So it's kind of in my blood. And I was always interested yeah. in birth, even before I had babies myself. And I was also really lucky that I had experiences of um well, I, I studied, I did my training in GP, family physician obstetrics back in Whangarei, actually, in New Zealand. And that was a time when there was more no, normal births, I guess you could say, um, a fairly healthy, low-risk population. So I saw a lot of, well, obstetrically normal births, you could say. But um, And then I had the experience of um, attending or supporting two friends having their babies at home, one in New Zealand and Wellington and one in Melbourne where we moved after that. And I really saw the difference between what happened in hospital, even in the kind of best case scenario, and then the kind of freedom and comfort that women had in their own homes. And I and I thought, well, that looks like a good option. And mm. um, I was also lucky in my choice of partner because my husband's sister actually had been a home birth midwife, I think at that stage oh, wow. for about 20 years in Wellington. So it was almost like, well, of course, we're going to have our baby at home. <laughs> like halfway through the first pregnancy, we went, oh, maybe we should consider going to hospital oh, no, no, we'll just go over and just, <laughs> just stay home. <laughs> but in fact, the other part of that birth actually was that we'd both recently done our um, GP obstetric training in Whangarei. And so we were a bit aware of what can go wrong. So it was really important to us to kind of have some of the bases covered. Like one of the things I was worried about was in case my my baby couldn't breathe and needed intubating. This is not something you really think about at home, but because we did because of our hospital experience. So we had to have someone that could intubate baby so we actually had a GP there as well called Dr Peter Lucas who actually at, at that stage the the laws were that you had to have a doctor there so it was um a good happenstance oh, wow. on, on lots of um, perspectives but yeah we had our first baby a very sweet as I describe it oceanic birth a little head of schedule and I guess what was really interesting for both of us really was we saw what happened having Emma at home and then we knew what would have happened if we'd been to hospital for example we probably would have been risked out because she was a couple of days short of 37 weeks she was also born a little bit early she probably would have been put under the lights for jaundice she probably would have been supplementary fed and none of those things happened because we chose to have a home birth with her so we were kind of 
we were euphoric. <laughs> we were excited. It was a beautiful introduction to parenting. And, and also we had that extra knowledge that really had us support home birth even more. And subsequently, my next three children were all born at home. And each time I could see, well, yes, that was home. But if it had been hospital, it would have been a different experience, even when birth was completely straightforward. So, you know, I guess that's been the foundation of, of my work. But the other curious thing that happened with that first baby, Emma, was we actually had, we lived in inner city Melbourne in a, in a suburb called Richmond, like small, single-fronted, we call them houses in Melbourne. And we had some neighbours who had three children at that time. And we were good friends with them. And um, and Joe lent us this bassinet, like a baby cradle. And we set up the nursery and we had the room with a bassinet. And <laughs> that was what I expected to do, to put my baby in the bassinet and, you know, sleep in a separate room. But once I'd given birth to my baby, goodness me, I didn't want him more than an arm's length away. Like I just, something suddenly happened that changed my thinking like 180 degrees from where I was going. And I was really, it was such a powerful experience. I thought, whoa, how did that happen? Like, And it really <laughs> became a bit of a, um, you know, an intellectual um journey really like how how could I explain that and then I was fortunate to hear Michelle O'Donnell talk and I learned about the bit about the hormones and that really seemed to explain a lot about well that transformation for me but also why birth was such a positive experience and I hadn't really seen that or that so powerfully happen in hospitals so really that was my that was my journey of exploration and I guess also because I knew that it could be such a good experience goodness me I want everybody to have the best experience they can have which might not be a home birth but you know I want every mother baby father and family to have the best possible start and the work that I've done is really my kind of giveaway in that um, as a contribution to that for for other people other families mm, that's beautiful and you really got into the hormones and I you are my resource in terms of hormones for birth and that fabulous report which we will link um you know the, the report do you want to tell us a little bit about that I mean you've got your fabulous yeah. book which is fantastic <laughs> yes. for women and I actually gave mine away and had to get one off you. Um, but this report for anybody who, you know, particularly care providers and health professionals is a fantastic resource. Yes. Well, I guess going back to what I said before, what made sense to me in my lived experience as a birthing woman was there is this, what I now call Mother Nature's superb design. There's a way that birth is designed to unfold to be a positive experience for the mother and the baby and the family, you know, anyone in the room, really, we can talk about that. Mm. But um, so how does that unfold? How does how does it unfold hormonally, I guess, was the most interesting question at the time. And that led me to do some research, kind of, as I said, take the, some of the things that Michelle O'Donnell was saying at the time and look what's underneath that. What does the research say? How does that, how does that underpin? You know, what's the science underneath that? Because there had to be a science because it's biology. It's what we designed to do, you know, and I've had this very convincing, you could say, biological experience of giving birth. So I knew that it was real, but how, how, what, how, how do we explain that, you know, and how, mm. how come it's different? How come it's different from what we see in hospital? How come it's different from mm. 
most of the birthing studies that you see, um, you know, what is what is the difference there and how can we shift one experience to the other? Or as I now call it, how can we close the hormonal gaps that happen mm-hmm. when we when we do things to women in labor? Some of which may be necessary, some of which may be unintended, some of which may be just a result of the systems that were built around maternity care, which are not always friendly to the hormones of labor and birth. So that led me to, to to read about to read about it to write about it to research it, and then I was invited to write a more extensive report. And the funny thing is, when they asked me to do it, I thought, oh, yeah, that'll take me like three months, and it actually took six, seven years to write oh. it. You know, so I, I say the length of gestation is appropriate for the size of the baby, right? <laughs> so, so really ended up being this enormous tome with like more than a thousand references that 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 gave me that opportunity to really dive deep into the material and see, well, what is Mother Nature's superb design? And then what happens mm-hmm. when we bring in interventions, you know, what, how, how does that create hormonal gaps? And then, of course, the other important question is what can we do to fill in those hormonal gaps yep. when, when they mm-hmm. do get created? So that's kind of been my research up till, up till now. And then um, in 2016, I decided to do a PhD to fill in some of those gaps in research that were so obvious in the report. I mean, there's stuff we know, which is like a, a millimetre of all the, the depth of what we don't know. You know, there's mm. so much we don't know about the hormonal impacts of intervention. So that really became something um, I wanted to explore. So I'm very fortunate to be doing a PhD at the University of Queensland here in Brisbane and also working with a woman called Kirsten uvnas who's really the the worldwide expert in oxytocin and childbirth she's a she's an expert in pharmacology and physiology she's a medical doctor as well so yeah we've been having a really good time writing papers and um, just talking to Katie about where she lives in Lucerne because I actually went to Lucerne to a conference that was organized by a group of European researchers so we've all been working together writing these what we call systematic reviews looking at oxytocin levels in um, in labor and birth um, without interventions with interventions um, in relation to breast with breastfeeding in relation to intervention so a whole lot of interesting data that we have that we're busy writing up at the moment which um, I'm sure we'll get to talk about as well mm, yeah. yes please yep. <laughs> absolutely gosh that's really exciting um, for us and for the future and what you've already provided us with that is it's great stuff really is and makes such a difference to I mean my focus is lactation breastfeeding postnatal predominantly and obviously Rachel with pregnancy home birth birth physiological looking at that um, and it's the whole continuum and just how these hormones intertwine and how when we disturb that or we use alternatives how that changes the processes that can happen and also I find and I want us to talk about eventually in this podcast is looking at how if we've changed that kind of trajectory for a mom and baby the impact of that but how we also bring those hormones sort of back together or bring that physiology back together with the mom and infant as well Mm. yeah and the other interesting part of what you're talking about, Katie, is, and I think this is part of the problem in maternity care, is we have these outcomes of birth, we have the outcome of breastfeeding, we also have another outcome, attachment or bonding between mother and baby. And mm. what I say is that all of those things are like equally important in relationship to, um, mm. well, to evolution, really, if we go mm. back 65 million years, that's when um 
placental mammals first appeared on planet Earth and we are the result of those 65 million years of evolution and for all of that time until the last minuscule amount of time, maybe 200 years, you know, we've given birth successfully and in most of that time, apart from the last 10,000 years, we've actually given birth in the wild and birth is, so birth has evolved to be successful in the wild and that has certain considerations that we'll go into later but but also in the context of evolution it's critical that mother and baby survive the birth but that's not the only thing that guarantees species survival or reproductive success mother and baby also have to have successful lactation i'm talking all mammals here not just humans Mm. have to have successful lactation otherwise the babies don't naturally survive and again that's only been the last few hundred years that we've had alternatives to to mother's own milk but the other important um, part of it is attachment or bonding you know the mother has to be rewarded and motivated to give that care that every mammalian mother has to give to her babies you know and if you think about dogs cats elephants that don't go to classes to learn how to take care of their babies it has to kick in through hormonal processes that that happen through labor and birth so birth, breastfeeding and attachment are really one system. And the problem in our culture, as I see it, is we've separated them out. We've got birth over there with the birth professionals and their outcomes and their journals. And then we've got breastfeeding over there with the breastfeeding professionals and their journals and their philosophy and outcomes. And we've got attachment, which is not really even kind of in the same sentence as birth at the moment. Mm. Um, And when we separate those things out, we don't see the connections between things. And that's what's so nice about considering the hormonal material and so said oxytocin that I'm particularly writing about at the moment, it is a hormone of birth. It is a hormone of breastfeeding. It is a hormone of attachment. So it's obvious that, that all those things are interrelated. And, and also, you know, the other corollary of that is that if we interfere with the hormones of birth, could we interfere with the hormones of breastfeeding? Could we interfere with the hormones of attachment? And we haven't really started to ask those questions in the literature mm. as well and mm. a whole lot of implications of that as well. Absolutely. And it's not just, you know, we've, we focus on oxytocin, I guess, because that's kind of the hormone that's most well known, but it's not just oxytocin, is it? You know, the, the mothering and attachment is so much more than oxytocin and all these other hormones are, are coming in and interplaying and weaving themselves throughout the whole process to, as you say, to make mother and baby survive and, and continue. We'll be right back. I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mom, dad, parent, or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength, and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping, and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially, and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the Global Lactation Clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour... 
Your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. That's right. That's right. And it's hardwired to us, you know, that what all of these hormones are called, I call it ecstatic birth because it's hardwired into us that birth is a positive experience you know if you think about other mammals it would be a problem if birth was aversive experience for the laboring mother she'd freak out next time and yep. plus also you know the, the, obviously the first time mammal giving birth has never been through it before and it would be quite frightening and like what what's going on here in my body so it really there really has to be this um positive aspects of it and, and, and all of those hormones that we're talking about contribute to that you know oxytocin brings calming connecting pain relieving effects it triggers endorphins in the brain and then release some of those pain relieving effects as well you know um, we talk about adrenaline and noradrenaline which are like the stress fight or flight hormones but they have a role in giving the mother the energy she needs to push her baby out um, prolactin is involved in breastfeeding and it kicks in um, at the last bits of labor and then helps to facilitate the production of breast milk later on so there is this hormonal continuity as i said from birth to breast feeding but mm. actually if we look at it and I'm just gonna the continuity starts before that I'm just gonna quote one of my um friends and mentors uh, the wonderful um late great Janine Pavati Baker who was a midwife she wrote the first book on prenatal yoga and she had six children and when anyone asked her how long her labor was she'd say categorically nine months <laughs> Because, because really, you know, it. all of these preparations start right at the very beginning. And yes, yes, they gather pace and they become more and more so. But we can't really separate it out. I mean, the paper we wrote on oxytocin uh, levels in physiological labor and birth, we found that oxytocin levels gradually increase as pregnancy progresses. And then they increase even more in labor and birth. And we can't say now they're low and now they're high. It's just a gradual shift you know, a gradual transition from pregnancy through to labor and birth through to postpartum, you know, from a biological perspective, it's not, you know, and again, I know some people might agree with this too, you know, we divide it up into stages or phases that we can kind of intellectualize and study, but really it is a continuity, you know, from conception to pregnancy to labor and birth and, and to the baby. And just personally, as a mother, sometimes I look back and I think, you know, I look back and I couldn't remember if something was before my baby was born or after, but there seemed to be that continuity when I look back. The baby was always there. Of course, the baby was there, you know. So <laughs> as a birthing mother, that that continuity is there as well. And of course, you know, if you're, if you're not so much tuned into the medical model, then the stages are, are slightly irrelevant as well. It's just what's happening in your body at the time. And, you know, dividing it up and passing it up can really be counterproductive in some, in some ways as well. Mm. it doesn't describe what's happening yeah yeah I mean of course it would why would we suddenly go oh today I'm gonna feel different at midday and oh oh wow that's a big hit of oxytocin I've just had there and some other hormones oh we're feeling really different quite amorous and um it just makes perfect sense I mean it all starts with that why would we you need to transition slowly so you don't have this kind of shock effect we're animals at the end of the day, it it makes sense. But yeah, to separate this up doesn't make any sense that the clock's going to tick over and we suddenly are a, a different person or we feel it needs to be gradual so that we sort of become into this new phase of being a mother, which is a massive transition in our life and take some 
you know, some getting used to in our society now predominantly. But if we were left alone, like you say, you look back and you saw that gradual change, but it's only when you look back that that it's there. And yeah, so that it makes perfect sense that the body would do this for us. Mm, yeah, and another example of that is um, that gradual shift actually We'll come back and talk about oxytocin a bit more, but one of the things that's, that, that does happen in the lead up to labor, we've got this gradual increase in oxytocin levels as pregnancy progresses, but that's on top of a whole lot of other, other hormonal preparations happening. You know, as I said, it's mm-hmm. not just oxytocin that causes labor to start, and probably it's probably mm-hmm. not oxytocin at all that causes labor to start. We don't even know what causes labor to start in humans, actually. <laughs> yeah. I say, if I I'd get a Nobel Prize, if I could tell you what caused labor to start in women, because <laughs> we don't actually know that. And you could think about the enormous amount of research and funding and effort that's been put into that because mm. of course if we knew how it started we could stop it when it happens too early but we don't know um, so it's it's a bit of a mystery but we do know that there's a whole lot of preparations that lead up to the the physiological onset of labor as I call it this is actually chapter two in the report and I actually wrote a, 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 a another paper about that recently and when when I went back and looked basically we still don't know what causes labor to start <laughs> and we still don't really know much more about it except that there's some kind of transition that happens from you know the the well it's basically from the progesterone the progestation effects of that hormone progesterone to the activating Mm. effects of the hormone estrogen and one of the things that estrogen does is it increases or we say upregulates the whole oxytocin system including oxytocin receptors and mm. I'll just go back and explain that um, in, in case that's a, an unfamiliar term to you so basically we have the hormone oxytocin for example and that's made in the brain and it has effects in the uterus and it has effects in the uterus because it reaches the uterus first it's released into the bloodstream but also when it gets to the uterus it binds with what we call oxytocin receptors, which are on the outside of the uterine muscle cells. And it's like putting a key into a lock. We have a specific key oxytocin, the specific lock, the oxytocin receptor, and they match one-on-one. Some, some hormones have several receptors. Some receptors bind to several hormones, but it's very kind of monogamous <laughs> appropriately for oxytocin. <laughs> so it binds to the receptor on the outside. And it's like putting a key into a lock and it basically turns the key, sends a chemical, sends a chemical message into the cell saying release saying say contract yeah so oxytocin from the brain causes these contractions and i mentioned that oxytocin levels go up kind of gradually as pregnancy progresses and 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 some of the early studies looked at well you know is there this is there a large increase in oxytocin that causes the onset of labor and what they actually found was there really isn't there's just this gradually increase in oxytocin but there's an increase in receptors so basically mm. the uterine muscle becomes more sensitive to the levels of oxytocin that are already there and they're not very high at the onset of labor you know they're equivalent of about for the midwives among you they're about four to six milliunits per minute of synthetic oxytocin that's how high the levels are at the onset of physiological onset of labor but what makes a difference is the oxytocin receptor numbers and I'll share a couple of anecdotes here one was a study you couldn't do these days but it was a German study where the obstetrician got his um 
is clients to come in every day at the end of pregnancy and injected them with a little bit of synthetic oxytocin and recorded the uterine responses. And as every day, they had more and more uterine responses on the day they went into labor, they had the biggest uterine response. Yeah. So that's kind of one thing. But um, personally, um, I fed my, um, my toddler through my second pregnancy and every day she'd come in and would have a little suckle and that was fine. But one day it was fine. But the next day, which was the day I went into labor, she came and had a little suckle and I had such a big contraction. I had to literally throw her off. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. the oxytocin release was the same, but my uterus had reached that kind of threshold for sensitivity. And I had obviously enough oxytocin receptors, plus a whole lot of other parallel processes that made my uterus like more responsive and Mm. more wired up and a whole lot of hormonally related effects that meant Mm. that I had this massive massive response to that bit of oxytocin from breastfeeding and that's when that's the day that labor started so yeah the 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 sensitivity to oxytocin increases in parallel with a whole lot of other things you know we can't just measure Mm. a woman's oxytocin receptors and know she's ready to go into labor I mean there's you know there's cervical changes there's actually inflammatory processes that happen there's a some way in which estrogen goes up and progesterone goes down it's not measurable on the bloodstream, but something that changes their relative activity to each other. There's oxytocin upregulation, there's prostaglandins, I mean, just a whole, and that's the stuff we know about, right? So there's probably a yes. whole lot of stuff we don't know about and everybody's searching for that one little bit that'll, that, that will tell us what causes the onset of labour. But, you know, it's a little bit like saying, you know, what causes sexual arousal there's a whole lot of other things involved mm-hmm. and in fact you know there's some of the there's a lot of hormone parallels between um labor and the processes of labor and the hormones of labor and sexual arousal so mm. um yeah some of it's uh, currently a mystery yeah. mm. which is then interesting when we think about induction of labor and how essentially induction of labor focuses on prostaglandins and synthetic oxytocin just mm. those two things that's what we're using to get labor going and then we wonder why it often doesn't work yes well it's not going to work if the the woman isn't at an adequate stage of readiness you know like Mm. just talking about synthetic oxytocin you know some women are induced with synthetic oxytocin and you give them just a tiny amount like what i was describing and everything happens and that means that they were at that point of readiness they probably would have gone into Mm. labor tomorrow right Mm. and some women you can pour bucket loads in and they're just not ready Mm -hmm. and that's the Mm. thing that's a trouble the trouble but that's the thing with human (laughs) labor and birth like in some of the studies i was looking at they study animals particularly rats and mice because they they had such a short um gestation and short breeding cycle but the gestation of a rat is 22 days so pretty much every rat goes into labor on day 22 but that's Mm. not true for women we had this wide variety of you know 37 weeks to 42 weeks that we considered to be normal so even if you induce people at 39 weeks which is obviously better than 37 but even then some women could be three weeks away from their own Mm -hmm. natural physiological Mm -hmm. onset of labor and we don't know that we're kind of blind to that so we don't actually know we could say the hormonal gap that we're creating for mothers and for babies and and that's one of the things that's that's coming out more in the research now people are using some of the big um cohort data sets and looking at uh, gestation of birth and then like developmental outcomes school outcomes and even it seems those last few weeks you know 39 to 41 weeks does make a difference to that child's developmental outcome later on so you know the brain is still growing and and you know saying every woman should give birth at 39 weeks or 40 weeks whatever we say it is it's like saying every child should walk at 12 months 
you know, there's this wide variety yeah. of biological norms. So mm. it really is, we could say, even arrogant when we don't understand what causes labour to start to be stepping over all those processes and saying, like, we know better than than the body, than the baby. You know, we're overriding the baby because as we understand it, and as I said, our understanding is quite um quite basic it's the baby that actually signals the onset of labor so there's all these hormonal messages happening through the placenta and it's a little bit different in different species but in women um, on humans it seems like the baby's maturing adrenal gland which is the little gland sits on top of the kidney creates cortisol which is a, a steroid hormone a stress hormone but um in uh, in the fetus and the baby in the womb, it, cortisol actually matures all the baby's organ systems, including the lungs. So this, you might have heard of this. You know, if a woman's going to labour prematurely, she's often given a cortisol steroid mm-hmm. kind of hormone to go into her body, go into her baby, and help the baby to mature the lungs. But the baby does it naturally in the in the lead up to labour. You know, there's cortisol and other processes as well happening to mature the baby's body and the baby's lungs. But at the same time, the um, the adrenal is also producing a, a pre hormone called DHEA, and that goes to the placenta, and that's made into estrogen, and then estrogen goes into the mother's body and starts to do all these things we're talking about to activate the mother's body for labour and birth, including increasing oxytocin receptors. So you can see with that kind of mm. system that the readiness mm. of the baby is coordinated with the readiness of the mother, and. We don't need a degree in science. We don't even need to know the research to to understand that because, of course, the mother has to be ready and the baby has to be ready. Otherwise, one or both of them might not survive, right? And that transition from life inside the womb to life outside the womb is so extraordinary. I mean, just crazy. It's like a fish coming in, suddenly breathing air. Like the baby's never (laughs) breathed and so they have to breathe and the baby's never regulated the temperature or their blood sugar or any of those things and suddenly the baby has to do it. So you can imagine there's so much biological or we could say evolutionary investment in a successful transition and that really, you know, in a biological sense that is related to the baby's preparedness as well so there are these pre-labor we call physiological preparations that are happening before the onset of labor for the mother and the baby and they're preparing the mother and baby for labor and birth and the specific stresses of that we'll come back to that point but they're also like looking ahead to prepare for breastfeeding and the newborn transition like for example the cortisol is making sure the baby's lungs are going to be mature enough to breathe when the baby does is born yeah mm. so the pre-labor preparations in labor preparations and then what actually happens in the transition for mother and baby because of course it's a enormous transition for the mother right she's had nine months to go from not pregnant to fully pregnant and then in a few minutes she's not pregnant anymore so again like huge changes have to happen in her body the placenta peels away have to seal up those blood vessels you know her blood volume that's been increased to perfuse the placenta and nourish the baby you know that 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 has to suddenly shift, you know. So all of those have to happen. Of course, you have to has to produce breast milk and all of those things. So, you know, it would be crazy to think that we can kind of dial up and order those transitions. Um, and that would be exactly the same as what happens biologically. So yes, we can make them happen. We can kind of push the river, if you like, with induction, but we can't presume that that is the equivalent to what would naturally happen or mm. Mother Nature's superb design, as I call it. But, you know, um, one of the features when you start to look at these things is we really haven't researched these things well you know we really don't know even the short-term outcomes from some of these processes and Mm. it's kind of why we're looking at the hormones because that gives us kind of you could say some traction on what might or might not happen in, in, in relation to those things.
Mm. And can you talk through a little bit about when we are using um, a synthetic oxytocin or a, a traditional induction method and how that specifically works within the uterus with the woman and in this process that she's going through in terms of you've just spoken through how incredibly complex and just it's just so wonderful hearing about all the hormones the complexities how they're working and the placenta and just how everything comes together and then we do induction and like Rachel said we sort of focus on prostaglandins and oxytocin uh on where what type of differences are we going to see in this birth in terms of how the mother reacts, um, what she's feeling, how the baby um, is preparing themselves for birth? Can you talk us a bit through this? Because I think our listeners would really like to be able to see these differences. I can tell you what we know, but it's not not very satisfying because we don't know a lot. We haven't really looked at it from that perspective um, very much. But the first thing to say about synthetic oxytocin is it's exactly the same molecule as the oxytocin we make ourselves. So you know, it was first discovered um, in about 100 years ago and then in the 50s, 1950s, it got synthesised. So the molecule, if we look at the actual molecule, it's the same as the mo- molecule we make ourselves. But the difference is that we make it in the brain. So I mentioned it's made and it's a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. It's stored in the pituitary. It's released into the body, goes to the uterus, binds with the receptors. That's what gives us those uterine effects of oxytocin. But at the same time, and this is critical, is that it's actually released into the brain as well. And oxytocin is a very powerful effect within the brain. In fact, if you were to Google oxytocin or look it up on a research database, you'd find tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands by now of references studying oxytocin because of this enormous um, spectrum of effects that it has within the brain. So you might have heard it in relation to autism, in relation to sexual activity, in relation to well, pretty much anything you can think of, anxiety, depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, borderline personality, sexual activity. And then there's also Shopping. a whole lot of other... Hmm? <laughs> Shopping. Shopping. <laughs> Singing, music, massage, stroking cats and dogs. Yeah, yeah. And then we have a whole lot of physical effects as well, you know, because it's anti-inflammatory, it reduces inflammation, it's antioxidant. And and the other powerful thing it does, which is relevant to labour and birth, is actually it's a, we call neuromodulator. It modulates or modifies how the the way the, the brain is functioning, specifically the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is, we might say, automatic nervous system it's a part of our our brain and and nerves that just keeps doing all the things in the background like our heart rate and our pulse and our digestion and all those things you don't have to think about that are just automatically happening in your body and the autonomic nervous system is kind of balanced at any time between what we call the parasympathetic branch which is the rest and digest calm and connection relaxation and growth so when we're kind of feeling relaxed you know we can digest our food we're kind of feeling mellow and you know we can our body can heal we don't have to do anything we're not under stress or danger that's the parasympathetic and the opposite of that is called the sympathetic so that's the you know as a fight or flight system it involves adrenaline and nor adrenaline but that's the one that gets activated when there's something to do you know even just being alert sitting up straight activates your sympathetic nervous system so it's it's, it's stress but it's also alertness so we're always in this balance between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic mm. and oxytocin is um, part of this because oxytocin modulates within the brain within the autonomic nervous system the balance between those things and it 
turns on the parasympathetic and turns off the sympathetic. So basically that's why it's a feel-good hormone because we feel calm, we feel relaxed, we feel connected, um, we have better healing, we have better digestion, all of those things happen when we have more oxytocin. And, and the opposite of that is the stress system. So we could counter stress with oxytocin, like having a hug, right? <laughs> um, like having sex, like holding a baby, like eating mm. meal, like socializing, all of those things, like singing, all of th those things release oxytocin, which dampens down the stress response. And actually not just the, um, we call the autonomic stress response, the fight or flight system, the adrenaline, but also the longer term stress response called the HPA system, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal system, which produces cortisol, which if, if you just forget what I said about the baby earlier, cortisol is actually a medium term stress hormone. And this was beautiful. We actually wrote a paper about uh, oxytocin release and breastfeeding. And one of the studies that we looked at had a beautiful graphic illustration of that, that as breastfeeding proceeded, the mother's oxytocin went up like a little curve and the and her cortisol level went down, were almost like mirror images of each other. Mm. So mm. oxytocin reduces stress on all of those levels. So oxytocin released into the brain is a neuromodulator. It calm and connects. It also is related to, it has, well, the oxytocin systems have nerves or nerve fibers that go down to the sacral area and um, have a network called a plexus of sacral nerves down there, and they feed directly to the uterus. So that when the when the oxytocin system is turned on, it increases parasympathetic. Um, uh, um, activity in the uterus and in the uterus parasympathetic activity like oxytocin and also increases uterine blood supply so oxytocin is a friend of the parasympathetic nervous system and they're both friends of labor and the opposite of that is the the sympathetic you know the the fight or flight system and that's not a friend of labor you know i call it the the saber-toothed mm -hmm. tiger effect you know mm -hmm. for any animal giving birth <laughs> in the wild that stress effect if a predator turns up is going to switch off labor of course it is you know like mm. a mother in labor if you if you've labored yourself or seen a woman in labor it's not easy to, to do fight or flight you know you can't run away easily you can't <laughs> <laughs> fight a predator easily and of course what's happening in labor for any laboring mammal is you know strange noises strange smells the blood the amniotic fluid that would attract a predator so a laboring female of any species is very vulnerable so so you know it's very important that she stays out of her sympathetic nervous system in labor but she's also you're quite sensitive to, to those things you know you've got to have this sixth sense to know why you're in a safe place to give birth because if you're not in a safe place mm -hmm. to give birth you and your baby probably won't survive right <laughs> so we've evolved this this sensitivity to our surroundings yeah. in labor and that has served us very well in the context of the wild you know if if things aren't if, if we feel a little bit unsafe it, it probably means there's something to be unsafe so we can stop labor and go and find somewhere that is safer um, or for most mammals we have some some way some environment that keeps us safe which might be a physical birth nest or cave it might be having other members of our social group like elephants do and the dolphin midwife, a whole lot of, you know, it's, it's very typical for mammals to have at least one birthing companion from their social group and sometimes a whole heap of them, like an elephant is surrounded by a, a group of laboring of elephants that that sway in time with her and soothe her with their trunks and, and for, form a formidable barrier, right? So that mm. mother in the centre of the elephant circle can feel, as I say, private, safe and unobserved, which mm. is going to keep her stress levels low, her sympathetic system low, it's going to increase her oxytocin. You know, and 
is such a subjective experience. You know, we can do all this studies and everything in the world, but if the woman doesn't feel safe, it's really, it's, it's not going to happen. And this might be familiar to, to, to listeners, you know, you're laboring at home or your friend's laboring at home and everything's going well and labor's proceeding and you hop in a car to go to hospital and or you arrive at the hospital doors and suddenly everything stops. You know, it doesn't mm. smell like home, right? And the this limbic system where this kind of, you know, um, assessment is happening is part of the primitive brain and it's smell and sight and sounds. And am I with familiar people? Because for these millions of years of evolution, not being with familiar people is a risk factor, right? Mm. It means you're at risk. So, you know, going and giving birth in an unfamiliar setting is is anti-biological, you know. It's, it goes <laughs> against our, our hormonal instincts, you know, and that's why, you know, my great-grandmother was a granny midwife because she was familiar to the people that she was attending in birth. And if you think about how other cultures and how traditionally in our culture we saw birth, you know, the number one um, priority of the caregivers was the woman's emotional well-being and feeling safe mm -hmm. because that's the foundation of it. And again, going back to sex, it's the same thing as sex. If yeah. we don't feel safe, we're just not going to get past the first base, right? So yeah. you can try and force <laughs> things and that, but it's not going to be the same. Yeah, the, the body's system and oxytocin in particular is not going to unfold in those circumstances. So, you know, the core requirements for birth is that the labouring female feels private, safe and unobserved. So <laughs> that was a bit, of a, 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 a bit of a detour. But if we come back to synthetic oxytocin, you know, it can't help the woman to feel safe. It can't help the woman to feel calm and connected because it doesn't go into the brain. Yeah, We inject it into the body. It can go from the brain where we make it into the body, but it can't go from the body back into the brain. And that's mm. characteristic of the molecule, of the hormone. You know, um, We've got this structure called the blood-brain barrier because we're fussy about our brains, right? Our brains determine what happens in our bodies as we just <laughs> described. And so we want to make sure we control what's in in the brain so we have this blood brain barrier that doesn't let many there's a lot of things that don't go through that yeah so oxytocin is a peptide hormone that doesn't easily cross the blood brain barrier 0.1 percent maybe so that's the problem with synthetic oxytocin it doesn't naturally give those calming connecting pain relieving effects but it can make labor stronger and it causes contractions that are stronger and closer together than the body would naturally produce mm. which tends to be more painful and then that can it can switch on all of these stress systems that we're talking about um and not just not just psychological stress not just pain stress but also stress within the uterine muscle you know the uterine, uterine muscles working hard in labor, right? It's like going for a run. Like you build up, mm. you metabolize glucose and fuels. You build up what's called lactic acid, which is a, a byproduct of that metabolism in the muscle. Um, if it's working hard and there's not quite enough oxygen to keep up, um, then lactic acid builds up. And that's particularly true for the uterine muscle because it's not like a, a muscle that's, you know, just going along there. It's actually regularly contracting. And as it contracts, it actually deprives itself of, of blood and oxygen to some extent. It seals off its own vessels. So um, this intermittent we call hypoxia then um, leads to lactic acid buildup in the uterine muscle. And one of the things that we're talking about in our paper we're writing at the moment is that this is actually part of the natural process of labor and birth too. This is part of what creates rhythmic uterine contractions so mm. we have the pulsatile release of oxytocin mm. from the from the brain but actually what was really interesting in these papers that we reviewed was some of them actually measured you know very frequently oxytocin levels and then the uterine contractions and they didn't necessarily marry up like you'd think 
contraction, mm-hmm. you know, oxytocin causes contraction, but they yeah. weren't necessarily in parallel. And we think the reason for that is because there's other rhythms, um, other cycles that are happening in labor apart from oxytocin. And one of them is this lactic acid buildup. So mm. the contraction happens, there's um, loss of blood and oxygen to some extent in the uterine muscle, lactic acid builds up and it gets to a certain point where it, that actually inhibits the contraction. And then the contraction subsides. And then, and this is really important, then there's a relaxation period in between mm-hmm. where the uterine muscle can recover, can restore itself, the blood flow comes back in, sweeps away the lactic acid the oxygen comes back in and then there's another then there's a the opportunity or the the groundwork is set for the next contraction so the cycles of lactic acid buildup probably help to um, um, cause the rhythmic contractions of labor and this is this is this has always been a question that i've had like how come when we give synthetic oxytocin in this constant way we still get contractions we still get Mm. rhythmic contractions Mm. right that doesn't quite make sense so these things you know this this other um, metabolic cycle is happening and we also think that there's an autonomic cycle happening as well so we have as i said the the oxytocin causing the parasympathetic which is making contractions effective which is also increasing blood supply to the uterus and then it gets to a stage in the contraction where these metabolic stresses happen that feedback to the brain and actually activate the sympathetic the stress things and then the stress kicks in the adrenaline um, sympathetic nervous system kicks in and that stops the contraction and then we have this break and there could even be we wonder if there might even be a reduction in oxytocin at the end of a contraction as well but that we can't it's hard to measure that in fact well in fact some studies have one study measured it in minute amounts and actually the the patterns of oxytocin were actually opposite to the patterns of contractions oxytocin was high between contractions and lower with contractions which kind of Mm -hmm. makes sense if you think about the a hormonal flow, oxytocin is causing the contraction, the contraction's getting Uh stronger, it's building up, the stress is happening and that's actually inhibiting oxytocin. So, yeah, there's an autonomic, there's a metabolic, there's an oxytocin cycles as well that's causing these contractions of labour. But the problem, going back to synthetic oxytocin, (laughs) the problem with that is the contractions are stronger. So we've got more of these metabolic stresses, which probably switches on the sympathetic more than the parasympathetic, Mm. number one. Um, And secondly, we've got the shorter gap in between. So for both the mother and the baby, there's not that chance to recover as well. So it probably shifts the mother at high doses that are causing strong close together contraction shifts the mother more into the stress system and away from the parasympathetic nervous system. So we think that it might unbalance the autonomic nervous system in that way. And of course, for the baby, you know, those contractions are stronger and closer together. Um, and, you know, the baby also has what we were describing before, the baby needs blood and oxygen to come through the placenta mm. from the mother. And as the uterus contracts it squeezes the placenta and the baby is deprived of blood and oxygen for some time in that contraction you know if it's really strong it might be a long time if it's early contractions just for a short time and it gets above a threshold and but of course you know we've just talked about mother nature's superb design we've talked about evolution so every mammalian baby that's the only way out right until very recently Mm. so all the babies are superbly adapted to this and they actually call it the stress of being born it actually is important for the baby that Mm. stress that the hypoxic stress activates um, that catecholamine surge, adrenaline and noradrenaline for the baby, which basically wakes all the baby systems up, you know, mm-hmm. so the baby is, is getting prepared for life outside the womb. It also, this 
surge of adrenaline and noradrenaline, the catecholamines also shifts the baby's blood supply to make sure that the baby's heart and brain are always well supplied with blood and oxygen. So it's protecting the baby at the same time. It's preparing the lungs, particularly by clearing the lung fluid, increasing lung surfactant, which is the lung lubricant, opening up the airways. So all of these ways that the the stress for the baby, the, the rhythmic contractions of labor cause um, metabolic stresses called hypoxic stresses for the baby. And that's causing, and plus actually the pressure of the baby's head on the mother's uterus as the labor gets stronger. All of these things build up as labor progresses. The baby has this massive catecholamine surge at the end of labor. And the levels of adrenaline that have been measured in babies, and this is from like, um, uh, just to pin, you know, pinprick blood samples on the scalp would be enough to cause a stroke in adults, but it's what the baby needs to, oh. to survive, to thrive in these extreme conditions. And in fact, you know, all of those, it's necessary for the baby. It's a positive stress. We call it mm. a U-stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. So the stress of being born rather than being a negative stress is actually an essential stress for the baby. It wakes the baby up. And if you think about the opposite of that, um, like a baby born without any warning at all, a baby born by a prelater cesarean. I always think it's like it's like someone comes into your room in the middle of the night and you all cuddle up in bed and it's cold and you're cozy and someone like strips the bedding back and it's cold and they shine this bright light in your eyes and you're just not ready. You're not in that cycle to wake up mm. and the same thing for the baby, yeah. they're not in that cycle to be born. Plus they haven't had these, um, the catecholamine surge and the rhythmic contractions of labour, which means that, you know, all those preparations we're talking about are not and haven't been done so the pre-labor cesarean baby in particular is more likely to have like you know poor trouble with the respiratory transition have more trouble breathing mm. you know six times more likely mm. um, have a poor um, temperature regulation because again these um, catecholamine surge prepares the baby to produce its own temperature um, blood glucose it makes sure the baby's got a good levels of blood glucose to see it through the transition till the mother's milk comes in so all of these things happen um, powerfully for the baby with a normal labor and birth and when we step over that with the pre-labor cesarean, the baby misses those things. So um, in terms of the baby and synthetic oxytocin, well, we know, you know, first of all, what's the first thing that happens when the mother has synthetic oxytocin? She gets a monitor put on her. Why does she get a monitor put on her? Because there's a risk to the baby. Yeah, mm. you, There's no mm -hmm. risk to the baby. There's no monitor, right? So you know there's a risk to the baby. And the risk to the baby is because of these more powerful contractions. So there's even from the beginning of labor, you know, more hypoxia for the baby. But critically, and it seems from what we're reading and writing at the moment, that the critical point is actually the the um, the relaxation in between because that's when mm. the baby can actually recover. And there was an interesting it's, it's a it's not a very um, pleasant if you're an uh, animal welfare experiment, but they actually did this complex um, experiment with sheep where they actually put instruments into the mother sheep and the baby sheep, and then they actually occluded completely cut the cord for a minute for the baby in the womb, yeah, and then they released mm -hmm. it. And the babies could cope for, for four hours every every five minutes, including the cord, as long as there was that space in between to recover. But if they made that space shorter, if they had one minute to two and a half minutes in between, the, those babies did really badly, yeah. So it's not so much the strength of the contraction. Of course, this makes sense, doesn't mm. it? Because at the mm. end of labour, those contractions do get strong, right? Mm. But the baby can recover if the baby has an adequate time. So the problem for the baby with the synthetic oxytocin is the contractions get stronger and closer together and the baby doesn't have that recovery time. So all of the things 
things that you may know about the the risks to the baby from you know strong contractions with synthetic oxytocin the baby is more likely to have a buildup of acid in the blood because it's not getting rid of the not hasn't got the oxygen in the blood flow you know the baby can end up more likely to end up in NICU um you know there's studies showing the baby has more signs of like um oxidative damage for example um so metabolic changes that are that are not that are more extreme than the baby in labor normally has because of course we don't monitor a normal baby in labor all the time so the baby in labor we presume can actually cope with that and that's true 99.9 percent of the time but the baby with synthetic oxytocin is at this increased risk so basically in a nutshell increases stress for the mother increases stress for the baby um, are the main effects that we think uh, one of the findings and some of the findings that we've had and i can only say a little bit about this because we haven't published it yet but um another finding that we when we looked at the level so this was a this is actually a we'll call a systematic review we looked at all the papers that measured the mother's oxytocin levels in labor and birth in relation to synthetic oxytocin. So they've given her synthetic oxytocin, then they measured oxytocin in her blood. And we can't, as I said, it's the same molecule, so we can't know whether it's her own oxytocin or the synthetic oxytocin. But levels go up. So obviously it's the synthetic oxytocin causing the levels to go up because they don't go up in the women that don't have it. Yeah. So her levels go up. But they only they only go up, we would say moderately, like two, three, maybe four times maximum. Maximum. That's not a huge increase, actually. Mm. And it's not enough. You know, we were saying how the, the blood-brain barrier doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. It's not enough to cross into her brain. You know, you have to have a 1,000 times higher to cross into her brain. Mm. So what we found was that, that there's really the, the levels are moderate and they're not high enough to cause direct effects in her brain. And then, you know, and they're not high enough to cross the placenta in significant amounts either. So they're not really, you know, we don't think that it causes direct effects for the baby either. And this is kind of an update to what I wrote in the report because at that mm. point we hadn't done this research. So... And the other thing that we found is that because we did include babies in this um, in this systematic review was a baby already has high oxytocin levels. So the baby's making its own oxytocin in labor. And the baby has human babies, so quite a mature oxytocin system. So the baby's making oxytocin and has calming, connecting. When the baby has stress in labor too, right, the baby needs a bit of hormonal help, yeah? And we know that because, for example, one finding um, recently was that the baby has this period after the birth where they actually have a reduced response to pain you know sometimes it's recommended that if you're going to do something painful to the baby like a heel prick or an injection do it in that you know window of several hours after the birth and the reason for that is because of those elevated oxytocin levels in newborn babies and you know oxytocin is a social hormone we talked a little bit about that so when the mother um, gives birth she's got these high levels of oxytocin three to four times higher than they were at the beginning of labor um, the baby's got these elevated levels of oxytocin even higher than the mother actually they come together and it's like when it's Michelle I don't call it the start of a great love affair yeah it's they're, they're in this perfect mm. state to fall in love the best first date ever I call it yeah because <laughs> because they're there designed to to socialize to interact to fall in love and also no accident it also um you know helps the mother to contract a uterus and stop bleeding it makes the mother the high levels of oxytocin after the birth dilate up her blood vessels on a chest wall forming a natural warming mechanism for the baby literally pulsing heat for the baby part of the magic of skin to skin you might have heard about you know the baby naked skin to skin on the mother's body is warmer than anything we could put wrap the baby in or put the baby under 
<laughs> and if the baby's a little bit warm, the mother cools down. If the baby's a little bit cool, the mother's warm up. It's a the mutual regulation system. And, you know, again, evolution, there's nowhere else for the baby to be. We didn't have hats. We didn't have warmers. You know, we probably didn't even have animal skins for quite a long time there. So the mother's body is there to warm the newborn baby up and begin this process of interaction, of breastfeeding, of attachment. Yeah. So the... It's going back a step to the, that uh, said that elevation of oxytocin in labor three to four times higher measured in the bloodstream at the end of labor than the start of labor. But of course, we can only measure it in the bloodstream. We can't measure it in the brain. So as far as we know, there's these huge elevations mm. in the brain and that's switching on instinctive mothering behaviors in all mammals. It's necessary. It's a necessary hormone for um, maternal caretaking behaviors. And part of what it's doing there is actually switching on. And this is part of the neuromodulating we were talking about it actually switches on the dopamine pleasure and reward centers. So we've got the mother with this fully activated um, reward and pleasure centers and then she meets her baby or babies for the first time, any mammal, right? And she gets the sensory information, the smell, the sight, the feeling of her babies and those parts of her brain get fired and wired together in this powerful way, get connected up. So her babies are from the very beginning a source of pleasure and reward for her and that's what's going to motivate her dog, cat, elephant, horse, you know, any mammal to take care of her babies when she hasn't been to classes, right? And that biological bonding, as I call it, you know, there's no reason to think that doesn't happen in women as well. Yeah. So that ecstatic birth is a, a, a brain-based, powerful activation of reward and pleasure centers that's designed to have us take care of our babies and have reproductive success. Wow. And yet so many women have that interrupted routinely. I would say almost Almost, well, yeah, more than 50% of women in Australian you know, hospitals are having that interrupted, either having their labor started or having their labor augmented or having a, you know, a cesarean section. Yes, that's right. And um, <clears throat> so what happens in that, in that hour after birth, um, going back to hormone levels, so as I said, the mother has this, well, actually, I need to I need to give you another little model. <laughs> you might want to disperse this somewhere, but but one of the ways that oxytocin works in labour is um, I describe it like this snowball of labour. Like labour is a process that isn't the same. Things don't stay the same in labour. It's not a homeostatic process, right? Mm. Homeostasis is all of us sitting here, like our blood pressure's even, our heart rate's even. If we get a bit excited and our heart rate goes up, we've got mechanisms that detect that and bring it down. So keeping our body systems um, uh, the same in the face of external internal changes. That's homeostasis, right? Things mm. are flat, yeah? <laughs> Imagine a flat line, yeah? But labour is not a flat line. You might have noticed labour is a is a slope, slopes up. It's an accelerating process, yeah? It's like, I call, I call it the snowball of labour. It starts small and gets bigger and bigger and in the end becomes virtually unstoppable. And the reason that happens is because it doesn't have negative feedback loops, which is what keeps homeostasis, you know, blood pressure goes up, it's detected and brought down, it actually has positive mm. feedback loops. So the more oxytocin we release in labour, the more oxytocin we release and the more oxytocin we release and the bigger the snowball gets, right? And this happens because of, well, lots of feedback loops, but one in particular that you may be familiar with, they call it the Ferguson reflex, right? So what happens is the sensations, the uterine contractions and sensations in the uterus are fed back to the brain by a specific nerve 
pathway. When that information gets to the brain, it tells the brain release more oxytocin, not release less, release more, right? So the brain releases more into the brain so that there's more calming, connecting, pain-relieving effects, and it releases more into the body. Releases more into the body, goes to the uterus, causes stronger contractions. There's more pressure from the baby um, on the more sensations, more pressure from the baby on the cervix and lower um, lower uterus and vagina. And that extra pressure gets fed back, that information gets fed back to the brain again, release more oxytocin, stronger contractions, release more oxytocin. And it's a perfect system because as labor gets more intense, that hormonal um, central brain-based hormonal health, the calming, connecting, pain-relieving effects also get increased, yeah. So mm. labor gets a snowball in the end, as I'm sure you know. <laughs> it becomes virtually unstoppable. You just can't stop it, yeah. You can go to the hospital, but nothing's going to stop that. In fact, <laughs> at that stage, sometimes extra stress can actually promote labor, yeah. We think about yeah. the saber-toothed tiger turning up at the end of labor. When labor is so big, it's unstoppable. It makes no sense to try and stop it. So that extra stress at the end of labor, you know, and you might have experienced this yourself as a listener, you go into hospital and when things are really strong in labor and that, that stress of being in an unfamiliar place can actually trigger a quick birth, you know, you can give mm. birth in the lift or in the car park or just as you can <laughs> right? So that's that kind of the other side of it. But that Ferguson reflex or that positive feedback loop is what drives the processes of labor. So that's why from the start of labor to the pushing stage, when this feedback loop is going full tilt, right? lots of sensations you might have noticed lots of feedback mm -hmm. more contractions it's designed to have a quick and easy birth so the predators don't get us in the wild right <laughs> but then even if we think that the the oxytocin level at that moment of birth is really high because of this feedback loop it goes up even more in that first hour and there was one study that showed in, in one woman um, her own oxytocin level went up 10 times from, wow. from birth to the, in the first hour after birth. And the reason mm. it did that is because of the interactions between mother and baby. Mm. So coming back to what you were saying, Rachel, about the ways we interfere with that hour after birth. So we, you know, <laughs> I could tell an anecdote about this, but, you know, the usual um, medical thing, and I was, this is how, the way I was trained was, you know, you, the baby's born, you pick up the baby, you take it over to the wall where the oxygen is and you like see if it's got a, all its fingers and toes and stuff and then you wrap it up and give it back to the mother. So the routine has been to separate the baby from the mm. mother and then what we found is that um, and, and then we actually are causing an oxytocin gap for the mother you know she can't release her own oxytocin because she hasn't got her baby skin to skin and then we have to give her synthetic oxytocin to fill in that hormonal gap mm -hmm. because it's actually the baby's activities on the mother's naked body that release that oxytocin up to 10 times higher it's particularly the hand massage so if you look up videos of breast crawl you'll find when the baby yeah. gets within near to the breast it starts to massage the mother's nipple and mm. yeah and in that in that um in that activity the baby can act them they can actually increase the mother's oxytocin 10 times um you know average one mm. and a half but up to 10 times yeah mm. and then um the baby massages the hand and the baby usually starts finger sucking or fist sucking um getting the saliva juices going and mother's oxytocin level can go down at that point because there's no stimulation to her body and then the baby starts suckling and levels go up again yeah so it's a, you know, it's a cause and effect, we could say at this point, the baby's mm. activities on the mother's new, new um, naked body causes release of oxytocin. Mm. And the other interesting thing about that, it's part of our research, is that 
that increase in oxytocin actually depends on the oxytocin release in labor. So there's something happening with those oxytocin peaks in labor that sensitizes the mother's skin so she releases this oxytocin. Because women who've had a pre-labor cesarean, for example, don't release oxytocin, what's not measurable in um, wow. from skin-to-skin contact with their baby. And in some of the research that she did, the women who had epidurals didn't release as much oxytocin either, and the babies actually had to work harder to get the mothers to release oxytocin. And it's kind of like, it's again, it's a mutual regulation, you could say a feedback system between mother and baby, because the more the baby massages, the more the mother releases oxytocin, the, the warmer her body is, yeah. So mm. in one of these studies, they actually randomized um, babies to mothers and fathers skin-to-skin after birth, after a pre-labor cesarean. And the babies actually cried more in skin-to-skin with the mother. And we hypothesize it's because mm. the baby's going, like, this is meant to be warm. What's going on here? Mm. Like, I'm not getting that, that mm. you know, that mess yeah. that I expect after birth. Mm. So interesting, interesting. Mm. So, yeah, so in terms of synthetic oxytocin, um, we don't actually think it interferes with the mother's release of oxytocin either directly or indirectly. And the reason for this is because of those positive feedback loops that we talked about. Mm-hmm. So it's not a negative feedback situation. You know, more mm-hmm. oxytocin yeah. doesn't make her release less. In fact, more yeah. oxytocin, if it causes stronger contractions, could even fuel this positive feedback loop. So mm-hmm. what we what we have seen in the research is that small or moderate low levels, low doses of synthetic oxytocin in labor can actually increase the adaptations of the oxytocin related adaptations for the mother. And in that study, for example, of the pre-labor cesarean, where the mothers didn't release oxytocin and skin to skin contact with their babies in this study, kind of accidentally, some of the mothers got a big dose of synthetic oxytocin, 50 units after their cesarean. And those mothers actually did release it. So there was a hormonal wow. gap there and the synthetic oxytocin seemed in some way that we don't really understand to fill in that gap. We're not advocating that that is a, is a panacea <laughs> or treatment or whatever, but it's an interesting finding that, um, that it doesn't, really, doesn't reduce the mother's own oxytocin release and in some circumstances may actually help to promote the mother's oxytocin release. Wow. And, it, and it's so important not only for us to understand oxytocin and how to support it in physiological birth, but given that women will, you know, have intervention, whether necessary or not. And a lot of women have necessary interventions. How do we then, you know, support them? And how do we kind of bridge that gap, as, as you call it, mm, um, mm, to optimize mm, exactly. their oxytocin release? Yeah, exactly. Really exactly. Yeah, exactly. And you know, just going back to the pre-labor cesarean example, I'm just going to share an anecdote. Um, it's actually a birthing story I read in a magazine. It was a mama who had two natural births. I think she had them at home. And the third one, she needed a pre-labor cesarean. It was a medical necessity. And she said, she said, when I got my baby after the birth, my baby felt different. So cue everything we've just said about the catecholamine mm-hmm. surge and probably she was different too, right? And she mm-hmm. said, my instinct was to have my baby skin to skin. And after three days of skin to skin, my baby felt the same. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So skin to skin and breastfeeding are basically the two things that are going to fill in those hormonal gaps. Breastfeeding releases pulses of oxytocin, you know, um, skin to skin releases more constant oxytocin generally, but both of them will help to fill in those hormonal gaps. But the other thing about that story, that anecdote I just shared is that, you know, when we have, when the mother and baby are ready for labor and birth, we have all these pre-labor preparations that we talked about. We have the in-labor processes. We have a window of opportunity 
deep, we could say, or mm. it's sometimes called mm-hmm. an early sensitive period. Everything's lined up, you know, like the best first date ever, all the circumstances are there <laughs> for it all to happen and mother and baby to, you know, be born successfully, breastfeed, bond, et cetera. But if we, if we don't get that window of opportunity, you know, if we, if we have a hormonal gap, if we're out of synchrony with the hormonal flow, then yes, we can fill in that hormonal gap, but it's going to take much more effort, you know, like yeah. an hour of skin to skin after a normal birth versus three days of skin to skin after yeah. a prelabor mm-hmm. cesarean. And the other thing we haven't mentioned actually in terms of hormonal gaps, and this comes back to the synthetic oxytocin data as well, is it doesn't seem to be the synthetic oxytocin that interferes with oxytocin release. It's actually the epidural. So it's such a mm. common co-intervention, mm-hmm. right? So you get synthetic oxytocin, mm-hmm. the contractions are stronger, it overwhelms mm-hmm. your natural pain relief system. So you have an epidural or conversely, you mm-hmm. have an epidural for pain relief and um, and then it reduces your oxytocin for reasons I'll describe in a minute. And then you need synthetic oxytocin. So those two things often go together. Mm-hmm. So it can be hard in the in the literature to kind of disentangle those two effects. Yeah. But, but I said synthetic oxytocin doesn't reduce the mother's own oxytocin production but epidurals do and the reason for that is because they're so effective at pain relief yeah so remember our positive feedback cycle mm. where the sensations feedback to the brain to release oxytocin so because epidurals are so effective at reducing sensation they basically cut off that feedback and the the brain the mother's brain in labor has no stimulus to release more oxytocin so what we see and this is one of our upcoming um, reviews but you know there's lots of studies you can see in my report is that the mother's oxytocin level slows down yeah and there's a big hormonal gap at the end of labor and it's not just a hormonal gap that we can measure in the body but what's happened to the oxytocin in her brain as well and um, we can do things <laughs> to animals we can't do to women. And in sheep, they gave them epidurals and they found that, yes, particularly for first-time mothers, they didn't bond with their babies and same with cows unless they injected mm. oxytocin back into the, the labouring mother's brain um, and that restored wow. it. So there's a there's a brain hormonal gap as well for epidurals and there's some human um, research around that. Um, women had, again, you can see this in my report, but women had epidurals um, uh, one study, they actually recorded how often they asked to have their baby rooming in and how often they sent them to the nursery. And they were more likely to put their baby in the nursery for longer periods. And that was actually in proportion to how much bupivacaine, local anesthetic they'd received, which is what it is that causes that numbing effect. So the more numbing, the less yeah. reward and pleasure, the less they wanted to be with their babies. And these are subtle things. And I've just got to say one thing. Um, I'm not saying that if you have an epidural or a pre-labor cesarean, you can't fall in love with your baby or be a great mother. Of course you can. <laughs> course yeah. We've got all these other capacities as humans, as women, yeah. But there's mm. a biological bonding. There's a biological phenomenon that's wanting to make it as easy as possible, as pleasurable as possible to look after our babies and if you don't get that there is a hormonal gap and you can can fill in that hormonal gap with skin to skin as early and as much as possible and breastfeeding and one of the other things I haven't mentioned, I, I mentioned the term oxytocin adaptation. So, you know, oxytocin, I said it, you know, facilitates maternal behavior in all mammals. If they don't have it, they don't, not maternal. But one of the things it does in women is it actually changes our personality. So there's peaks of oxytocin in labor and birth. Women who've been through physiological birth, um, they become more sociable, less anxious, less tense. Yeah. And, mm. um, Women have not been through a physiological birth with a cesarean, for example, don't get those personality changes, but women have had an epidural don't get those personality changes either. So that's really 
illustrating exactly wow. what I said, that mm. they haven't got that central oxytocin, the reward and pleasure centres. They, they exit, as you can describe in my report, they're not in that altered state of consciousness with the oxytocin and the endorphins, you know, that we enter when we go through physiological labour and birth. We go to another planet, yeah. We go to mm. labour land, you know, yeah. and, and epidural cuts that off, yeah, stops those feedback loops, stop the dopamine and the endorphins and the oxytocin. And we don't get those changes in personality. We don't transform um, in the same way that, that women do with a um, physiological labor and birth. So in this study, um, they found that women didn't get those personality changes with an epidural, but when the women um, exclusively breastfed for several months, then they got the personality changes. So again, it's filling in a hormonal gap, right? It's mm. going to take longer, but you can get there eventually. You've just got to be more patient. Yeah, so skin to skin and breastfeeding as early as possible, as much as possible. And again, you know, in evolutionary terms, there's nowhere else for the baby to be, but on the mother's skin to skin. So, you know, um, studies also showing that um, when women had that extra skin to skin, two hours a day the first week, and I think it was one hour a day after that for a month, their postpartum depression scores were lower. You know, yeah. the baby is the medicine. You have your baby skin to skin, mm -hmm. you release oxytocin, you feel better. You breastfeed, you release oxytocin, you feel better. You know, Mother Nature wants us to be happy and um, available and energetic mm. to look after our babies as much as possible. Yeah. So, again, that's all part of Mother Nature's superb design or we could call it species survival. That's what has had us survive being here and, and produce offspring who survive and thrive and go on to produce more offspring who survive and thrive. Wow. Yeah, thank you. I think for me, the, the big take-home message is there are, you know, what the system we're working in at the moment is likely that a vast majority of women are going to have some kind of medical intervention that is possibly going to cause this hormonal gap. These changes are not going to happen in the same way as a physiological birth. But the other take home real message is one of positivity of that. This is um, it's a simple process that actually brings the body, the mom and the baby working together again and the hormones in sync and that skin to skin um, and breastfeeding and bringing that bonding and bringing them together. And I think it's so simple sometimes in the hospital system that we currently work in the majority of us it doesn't happen. And we see this golden hour, whatever it's called as the, you know, the time when we do skin to skin. And then the rest of the time, this baby's often wrapped up like a little burrito and put in the plastic bassinet. And then visitors are in, obviously in the last year or so, things have changed with that. But this skin to skin isn't always encouraged. And often, you know, from the transfer from a birthing suite to the postnatal ward, the baby's separated from mum. And, and that was always a great thing of, of probably all of ours was to say, actually, this doesn't need to happen. Like the mum's not going to drop the baby. She's got all of these incredible hormones going on. She's not going to drop that baby and we can make sure she's secure. Let's transfer her with the baby. Let's keep them in skin to skin contact no matter the time, because then it becomes the norm for her, the norm for her partner to see, the norm for the postnatal midwife to see. And it starts keeping this as a normality that skin to skin is part of therapy it's not a nice to have mm, beautiful beautiful exactly mm. exactly yep good good way to fill in those hormonal gaps and to normalize it as well as i said it's our evolutionary norm mm. so you know and and for the baby as well you know 
the baby has is hardwiring to survive, right? And a baby that's out of touch with, you know, well, for our babies anyway, we, we're not cashing babies. We don't put our babies in nests and go off and hunt. Some species do that. But for, for humans and, and, and other um, apes, you know, we carry our babies with us and the babies are hardwired to know that when they're in touch with another human that they're safe, that they're going to be looked after. Mm-hmm. But a baby mm-hmm. by itself is significantly at risk. You know, if we were out in the wild and we put our newborn down and turned around, it wouldn't be there when we turn back, right? Yeah. So our babies are hardwired with that, that, oh, my God, like if I'm not in touch with someone, I'm at risk of my life, yeah. Mm-hmm. So for the baby, you know, crying and wanting to be held and wanting to be in contact and want to be in skin to skin particularly is is the norm, you know, and that's what mm-hmm. our babies cry for and that's what we're designed to do. And as you say, you know, that skin to skin is a process of mutual regulation, you know, it releases the mother's oxytocin that keeps the baby settled. They're both in this parasympathetic system, you know, um, yeah, and there's nowhere else for the baby to be. Mm. Thank you. Rachel, have you got other questions? I think no. It's, I've been sitting there going, yes, because all these questions I was going to ask. I know. It's just like. <laughs> and you tick, were just ticking them off. Oh. Yep, yep, yep. Excellent. Oh, it was fantastic. Brilliant golden nuggets there. Oh, my oh. God. Like, ooh, ooh, lovely. I'm looking forward to listening to this again. <laughs> yeah, me too. Yeah, it's nice that it all fits together so well, isn't it? And it's nice when we start to understand the mechanisms and the kind of biology. I mean, I guess we could call it science, but it's really biology, you know, mm-hmm. the biology that has us fit together and has us be successful and is designed to be successful, yeah. you know. Mm. Any practices or services that that are there to support women need to be designed around these principles, need mm. to be designed around the physiology of what's happening and how to support it. We're just coming at things from completely the, the wrong angle, you know. Risk management is supporting this complex physiology because it's actually going to do it itself. It's, it is safe if you, you know, if you support it. Yes, that's exactly it. And I mean, we could have a long conversation about risk management, couldn't we? Because it seemed to me in my lifetime, and probably you guys too, you know, that we're going after smaller and smaller risks, you know, we're doing more and more to avoid smaller and smaller risks. And really the benefit versus you know the the work versus the gain is is getting incrementally smaller really you know mm. some of the ways that we interfere with monitoring with um you know um induction you know the induct post-dates induction to avoid a really small risk i mean that's a you know from everything that we've said that's a a significant effect you know mm. we actually in this study i'll just mention this in passing but um we did a systematic review where we took all of the interventions we could think of or, you know, all the interventions and put oxytocin levels and all of these interventions. So we actually got a whole lot of data and the synthetic oxytocin paper that we're almost finishing is only one small part of that. So we've also looked at um, epidurals, cesareans, rupture of membranes, um, uh, stretch and sweep. There was a little bit about that. Um, um, and prostaglandins and the prostaglandin studies were actually quite old studies and in some ways that's good because the older oxytocin studies were actually more um, valid they used a, an assay called radioimmune assay and the the levels are very um, uh, valid and comparable some of the newer studies use different assays called ELISA and they can give really wildly different kind of results for example in our in the one we're doing at the moment, in one study, the um, 
they gave women 30 units, I think it was, of synthetic oxytocin after the birth and using ELISA, they couldn't even see a rise in oxytocin, which was a bit crazy because it really should have gone up significantly, mm -hmm. right? So, yeah, there's some problems with the assays as well, which we've been looking at. Um, so, anyway, so the older studies are the better studies, the take-home message, more valid. You know, they use the traditional things. And also they did some things you can't do these days, like that study of the you couldn't mm -hmm. get your women in every day and give them a little bit of synthetic <laughs> oxytocin. Thank you to the women who participated in that, I'm going to say. Germany. Um, so yeah, so but but they there were some older studies that looked at prostaglandins. Some of them were, in fact, they were so old that they were actually using intravenous prostaglandins. That was before my time. Um, and also um, uh, putting it into a cervical cap, some tablets, some creams. But anyway, it looks like, and we have to analyze this data a bit more, but it looks like those prostaglandin mechanism of labor, and these women did go into labor, didn't necessarily elevate oxytocin levels. So some of those women didn't have those elevations of oxytocin that would be you know, the same as physiological labor. Mm. But, you know, it kind of makes sense because labor and birth are such critical evolutionary processes that, you know, there might there may well be built-in redundancies. There may be other pathways. If that pathway doesn't work, there's another way to get there kind of thing. Mm. Um, and it may be that the prostaglandins is kind of like a slightly separate pathway. But does it mean that, that women aren't releasing oxytocin in their brains? Like, what does it mean? We don't really mm. know. And we've got this little bit of data. And it's such a, you know, like, whoa, how many women are getting prostaglandins to be induced? Like a large numbers of women. And we don't actually know mm -hmm. what it does to the oxytocin system. So that's really important. And the other thing is, you may know this, and again, it's in my report, but, you know, um, prostaglandins can also have anti-prolactin effects. They can reduce mm -hmm. prolactin, which is the breastfeeding hormone. Mm -hmm. So what does it do to breastfeeding? Again, not a lot of research in that either. So, you know, we're doing these things and it seems like a good idea or the, the least harm, you know, because prostaglandins are replacing synthetic oxytocin, which can cause more pain in labor. And sometimes they do give a more natural labor, you know, so... We're trying to find the least harm, but we really haven't thought through all the possible consequences of that. And we haven't studied, we don't have the data on all the possible consequences and what the consequences of those consequences and the consequences of those consequences of those consequences. Because, mm. you know, as I said, this is an early sensitive period. Things that happen there can have major impacts down the line. You know, there's some, um, you probably know some of the skin to skin research, but there was one study, actually a student of Kirsten's, where she went into a Russian maternity hospital. And at that time, they were routinely swaddling babies and removing them and putting them in those, you know, long <laughs> newborn nurseries, right, mm -hmm. with all the babies in a row. So this randomized study was that versus skin to skin for two hours. So that was the that was the that was the experiment, <laughs> which is kind of crazy biologically oh. because everything else is the experiment. But anyway, in this study, and so and then they actually followed those mothers and babies up a year later, and they videotaped the interactions between them and the mothers who'd had that two hours of skin to skin had better interactions with their children they mm. spoke more positively to them and the children had better emotional regulation so two hours of skin to skin in this early sensitive period in this mm. window of opportunity has those big effects down the track yeah um mm. wait we don't fully understand how it's probably oxytocin related effects or something like that but things we do around the time of birth can then have these long-term effects I guess is what I'm saying and like I said the induction study showing that you know children who are induced even a week or two early may have some 
you know, small or maybe additive effects on, on development and school attainment later on in life. So you know, we don't really know this. We understand the system that we're interfering with. We don't understand the mm. consequences of the hormonal gaps and the, the gaps in development as well. No, and we, and we won't know for maybe generations. Mm, mm, mm. we've got to look at it I mean there are some interesting you know like using those linked in fact there's some fantastic studies happening that one that Hannah Darlin did that looked at Mm. um, 16 year old outcomes after elective induction of labor and some negative health outcomes for asthma and allergy something else yeah yeah so we are we are starting to get that data whether it's going to feed back into the system make people a bit more cautious I don't know I don't know can but hope and talk about yeah. it and shout about it. And that's, yeah, yeah. that's and I think that, what we're doing yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, and I think the evidence, I mean, it's good, you know, like it's a, it's sad that we have to have the evidence for what's we have to support, we have to use evidence to support biology. I mean, yeah. it's insane really, but, but mm. it's good when we have it and I think we are accumulating it. And the other thing I feel really positive, you know, that thing about um, the World Health Organization report about birth being a positive experience, I can't remember the, the name of the report and but basically they said birth shouldn't just be you know um, a physical thing it should be a positive experience for women yeah. and there's a lot of mm. research happening around the world about that like women's out you know what a women report is there as the outcomes that matter to them you know mm. respect and disrespect and care like how can there was one great one called team birth like how can we align um the carers with what the woman wants and, and improve outcomes like i think we are getting somewhere in relation to that stuff, you know, and if we mm. can, like, have ways of what the woman wants matters, <laughs> then we can get closer to physiology and biology, right? Because women know, you know, they know, mm. they know that it's going to be better for them if it's all natural, yeah. It has been so brilliant listening to you and I can't wait to listen back again and again. And I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will feel the same as well because it's just like, oh, God, I've got to remember that and I've got to look up this piece of research and I need to just absorb and download it so it's there. It has been an absolute joy and pleasure, Sarah. It's been a delight and I hope I can see you face to face soon. Yeah, I hope we can get together to, to Rachel and, yeah, just – um Sending my best wishes to everyone listening. You know, if you're a birthing mama or family, then all the best. Mm-hmm. I hope that you can use some of what I've said to um, increase your capacity of for Mother Nature's superb design and to fill in the hormonal gaps as well. And um, trust your body, trust your baby, trust birth. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. What a ride through the most amazing hormone and systems in our bodies. Golden nuggets galore. Once again, and as always, please take a stop, a break from whatever you're doing and don't go anywhere as I need you to get onto Apple Podcasts and tell them what you think of the cauldron. Yes, your voice counts and doing this helps get our collective voices out there and make change happen in this simmering cauldron of ours. And if you would like to donate to support the podcast further, please click over onto our Patreon page. You'll find the link in the show notes or also over at our Instagram at The Midwives Cauldron. By doing this, you help to support us so we can provide more and more of this content to the people who need it. We are always thrilled to have you with us in the cauldron and so grateful and thankful that all of you share stories and talk about this podcast 
and send us really amazing DMs as well. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, as always, I will say goodbye and leave you with the bloopers. No problem. I think I've sent you a bio, haven't I? Anyway, whatever you want to say is fine. <laughs> make it up, make it up. Dr. <laughs> Sarah's fantastic, so have a listen in. I mean, that's basically how I say. If you haven't heard of her, where have you been? Um, and get listening. Yeah. That would be it. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, Rachel, I'm going to get you to say goodbye because I said a goodbye and then Sarah can say goodbye and I can cut that. Well, I don't know what to say. I don't. <laughs> this is it. This is every time. This is our podcast. This is why it takes me eight hours to bloody edit when it's just the two of us. <laughs> this is this like every ten minutes. Both of us. I mean, I just get so absorbed in listening that I forget I that I'm actually supposed to be like a podcast person. A podcast person. Brilliant. That's how I'm going to end it. Thanks for being here with us, podcast persons. It's great having you, Sarah. <laughs> Wondering which of my courses is for you? Breastfeeding and lactation, the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs. This course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning, case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks. It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80 to 96% of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just eight weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers.